Good evening and welcome to Buckner Hall. I'm Sanford Unger, president of Goucher College, and delighted to uh, welcome this crowd for a very interesting evening. We're delighted to have with us tonight Gershom Gorenberg. This, uh, his talk this evening, we have many very generous donors to the college, of course, and to, including to the Judaic Studies program. The talk this evening is made possible by, uh, by the Judaic Studies program and the Celeste Bashov Grinberg 57 and Jack Grinberg Fund, which was established specifically to fund lectures and other initiatives of the Judaic Studies program. I want to thank uh, Jerome Kapolsky. Jerome, where are you? There you are. Jerome Kapolsky, who is our... Director of the Judaic Studies Program, uh, the revived and revivified Judaic Studies Program. We, this is the first of many such events we expect to be able to present under its auspices. Uh, Gershom Gorenberg is a Middle East political expert, historian, and a journalist based in Jerusalem. He has, uh, he's a frequent commentator on Middle East affairs and uh, the connection between religion and politics, which I think has come to interest many of us over recent years in many parts of the world. He's been on television programs such as 60 Minutes, Nightline, Dateline, CNN, and the BBC. Uh, native of California, he graduated from the University of California at Santa Cruz and then moved to Israel in 1977, earned a master's degree in education at Hebrew University. He worked for many years as an associate editor of the Jerusalem Report, an Israeli biweekly news magazine, and is now a senior correspondent for the American Prospect, uh, monthly national political magazine in this country. He's written for many others as well. He's authored and edited several books, two of which you will have noted are for sale outside uh, the room, and uh, I'm sure he'll be willing to autograph those after, after his talk this evening. Uh, among his uh, uh, works uh, is uh, Jerusalem Report's 1996 biography of Yitzhak Rabin called Shalom Friend, and it was winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Uh, our format for this evening is that uh, Mr. Gornberg will speak, and uh, then he will take your questions, uh, which will be moderated by Jer uh, Jerome Kapolsky, and I assume we'll have our usual practice that Goucher students will have priority in asking questions, and after all the students who have questions have finished doing so, then others will be welcome to ask questions as well. Thank you for coming. Gershom. Thank you. That's what it was supposed to be. Uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Jerome, for arranging and making this evening possible. And having said that, I would like to apologize for the fact that the lecture is taking place more or less on time. Uh, <laughs> since I am speaking on the issue of messianism, there is a problem here of the a violation of the medium fitting the message. A lecture on messianism properly should be set <clears throat> for a certain time and date, be postponed, be postponed again. Uh, when the participants actually come, the lecturer should fail to arrive. Afterwards, there should be an announcement that the lecture actually took place on the spiritual plane, if not on the physical plane, or that it began and will be completed at a later date to be announced. So again, my apologies for being here and on time. In the limited time available, I would like to discuss altogether too much what Messianism is, why it is such a powerful force and not just in Judaism, and uh, how it affects Middle East and Israeli politics, 
and perhaps also to suggest some alternatives to the role of Messianism in, in religion. And uh, <clears throat> to begin with, I'd like to start with some messianic, or to use the parallel word in Christianity, millennial texts. So here is the first millennial text. If you could please take a look at it. Um, I'd like you to look at this text, and I would like somebody to explain to me why I've described this as a messianic or a millennial, uh, a millennial text. Can anybody, as you're skimming through here, explain to me why this, why this particular text is in fact a classic representative of the idea that's referred to as messianism or millennialism? Any thoughts? Oh, come on. Somebody's got to be able to throw something out here. Let me uh, you know, help you out by reading Communism is at once a complete system of proletarian ideology and a new social system. It is different from any other ideological and social system and is the most complete, progressive, revolutionary, and rational system in human history. The ideological and social system of feudalism has a place only in the museum of history. The ideological and social system of capitalism has also become a museum piece and part of the world in the Soviet Union, while in other countries it resembles a dying person who is sinking fast like the sun setting beyond the western hills and will soon be relegated to the museum. The communist ideological and social system alone is full of youth and vitality, sweeping the world with the momentum of an avalanche and the force of a thunderbolt. Why is this a messianic text? Come on, somebody suggest something to me. I only need one, one idea here. This is not a discussion section, but I really need a suggestion. Yes? Impossible to achieve? Uh, that's, that's a good start. It is not the world as we know. Any, any other thoughts? Yeah. It promises a perfected world. It promises a new system sweeping away the world as we know it, wiping away the past, establishing the final rule of justice. These are the characteristics of a millennial text. It is also a characteristic millennial text because it proved to be a total disappointment. And that is another um, aspect. Now, since we started with Mao, we will move on to Lenin. <laughs> Wait a minute, why isn't this not going? Sorry. We have a problem with the sound system? All right, well, you can at least read the text. Ah, here we go. I'm not going to play the entire song, but please read all of the lyrics so that... What's going on here? Can't get a little into the song already? Very strange. Okay, we've got a problem with the sound system. Besides the fact that the mixing is incorrect, why is, uh, why is this text a millennial text? Can anybody explain to me why this is um, an example of messianism or of millennialism? Come on, we've already got the answers laid out on the table. And you I just have to repeat the previous lesson. Come on. An ideal hope for the future. It's an ideal hope for the future. Any other things to, to add to this? He's uh, not the only one that believes in it. 
Uh, that's an interesting point. He's claiming, uh, he's arguing that this is a mass feeling, that, that, that this feeling is spreading. Okay, uh, so you have something that's a widespread belief at a particular moment in history. You have something that comes out of um, a mood of sweeping away the old order, wiping away the past and its alleged corruptions. There will be an era of peace. Um, it came out, the, the song itself came out in 1971, but it is an expression certainly of the late 60s attitude that a mass social upheaval would bring uh, a new age and, as I said before, proved to be a disappointment, um, a very important element here. And perhaps also I would note to you to look at this because everybody hears the song when they hear it and it seems very inspiring and everything. Please notice the elements of repression inherent in the song. Uh, because what this is basically saying is all sorts of differences will be wiped out, will be restricted, will be repressed in order to create this era of peace. So the utopia under the surface actually has some fairly frightening qualities to it. As these examples show, I hope, messianism is, first of all, a very widespread belief. It is intrinsic to modern and particularly Western history. And it is an idea which has been shared by millions of people, many of whom do not think of themselves as being at all religious, and indeed, as the case of Mao shows, may consider themselves to be deeply opposed to religion. So with that introduction, I'd like to try to define the idea of messianism. It is a belief in the end of normal history with its miseries, followed by a perfected world and perhaps also by, as the song indicates, by perfected people. It is the revolution after which no further revolution will ever be needed. It is final. It is the final redemption. Interestingly enough, the word in Hebrew for redemption, and if you follow this back in English, you'll realize it's the same word, geulah, means to return something to its proper state. It comes from the same idea as redeeming a coupon, sending it back where it belongs putting things where they actually should be, because the end is often conceived of as being a return to the original unblemished state of affairs. For practical purposes, in Western tradition, the idea of messianism begins with Isaiah and other Hebrew prophets. And it shall come to pass at the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the top of the mountains. And many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So you have the truth is revealed. The truth is put in its proper place as being recognized by everyone. And conflict ends. The world is perfected. This is the upbeat version of the end. There is also a more terrifying version, vision of the end, also from Isaiah. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel and full of wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy the sinners thereof out of it. This is the root of what uh, is labeled catastrophic messianism. Disaster has to precede redemption, cataclysm. The idea, very simply, is that before the new house can be built, the old house of history must be demolished. Therefore, disaster is necessary. A cleansing disaster 
is necessary in order to create the new era. Note several things about, common things about this vision. It is intrinsically subversive. The given order, the way things are today, is evil. It must be overthrown. Messianism implies an attack on the establishment. And therefore, in the histories of religions, often, not always, but often, Messianism is a force from the bottom up against the established order in the religion itself. This is also a reason why in studying religious texts, it is more difficult to find the messianic or millennial text of a religion in what could be called the high church, in the text coming out of the most establishment part of the religion, whereas texts coming out of the vernacular, the popular religion, you're more likely to find the millennial side of things. Uh, those are also the texts that get preserved less because they're not as honored and respected in the tradition. But remember, Messianism is an attack on the establishment. It is a very powerful vision, and it is one that has repeatedly attracted many people, sometimes as a distant hope, and sometimes in movements that see the change as happening right now, right away. And in that case, once again, the common element is people are disappointed. So I want to try to, I've tried for a long time to try to understand what is the attraction? Why does this idea have such a pull? And as we've seen already, it's not just within the inner circles of religion. It comes out in all sorts of mass cultural ways. Why is this idea of the end, the perfected world, so attractive? I'll throw out some ideas. I don't think this is exhaustive. These are sort of my hypotheses so far in trying to understand this. One is that there is a dissonance, a gap between how the world should be and how it is, and we are aware of that. And in particular, within religion, there is the problem known in Hebrew as tzaddik v'ralo, or to put it in colloquial English, bad things happen to good people. We believe, those of us who are religious, in a good God, but the world that the um, omnipotent good God created is not good. How do you make sense out of that? Babies die. Wars happen. Catastrophes happen. How is it that a good God created a world in which these things can happen? There are all sorts of theological answers to this question. For instance, there's the idea that uh, the reward is really happening for your good actions even though you're not always aware of it, or that it will happen in the next life in your next incarnation or in the next world. But the most radical theodicy, the most radical explanation of how to solve this theological problem is to say, yeah, the world is broken and therefore God will come and fix it or he will demolish it and replace it with a better world. Because this is one of the bases of Messianism, at least at first glance, it would appear that to give up Messianism threatens a religion with a kind of moral bankruptcy because it would seem to mean accepting the world as it is. And to be complacent in the face of the way things are is uh, morally unacceptable. There are too many bad things going on. So Messianism seems to be an answer to this. We do not accept the world as the way it is. We posit that it will be different. Now, pay attention that even though messianists of various stripes agree that the world is broken, they do not agree on what is broken about it. Very often by looking at their vision of the end, you can figure out what they think is wrong with the world today. Um, is it war, as in 
when Isaiah says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, he's telling you that one of the things that's broken about our world is that there's war. Is it poverty? Is it slavery? John Brown in American history would have told you that the reason that the millennium was needed is that there is slavery in the world as it is. What is broken about the world is often in the minds of people that other people have beliefs other than mine, that either the Gentile world does not accept the one God or that Jews have become secular and Western, or from a different perspective of a different millennial belief, that the Jews haven't accepted Jesus, or what's wrong with the world in the eyes of some people is that homosexuality exists, or in the eyes of other people that sexuality has been repressed in bourgeois marriage. It can be that the Jews are in exile, or it can be that the Jews have power over El-Aqsa. All of these things are in the minds of different people what is broken. The vision of the perfected world necessarily is a critique of the existing world. Anytime somebody presents to you a vision of the way things should be, they're telling you what they think is wrong now. There's also differences in how people can react to this. One very common result is quietism, accepting that things are this way until God changes them. There's nothing we can do about it. The problem is too big. I personally am not a repairman until the repairman comes the house will stay broken. Um, there can be an intense expectation. As far as I know, the repairman is arriving at four this afternoon, and I'm looking forward to him coming, as are all of my friends. And sometimes there is the sense that we must be active. We must start helping him. We must start preparing the way or start doing the repairs ourselves. The attitude in much of Jewish history after the Bar Kokhba revolt, a huge outburst of Messianism, has been to be quietist. In the ancient Jewish world, in uh, the first and second century BCE and CE, uh, Judaism was again and again um, flooded with a sense of expectation and of activism toward bringing the Messiah, which repeatedly brought disaster. And eventually, the Talmudic rabbis preferred the view that our job is to sit and wait. We actually don't know quite when the repairman is coming. So we'll just have to wait. But there are moments where people switch and start thinking that they have to do something about it. One tipping point in this may be the degree of dissonance. The degree of gap between my sense of how the world should be and what's going on. Let me suggest a completely different idea for understanding messianism. It is what I would call the narrative conception. People tell stories. People see the world as stories. It is very, very common among people to see history essentially as a novel, as a story that makes sense and has a plot. It has an author. He or she is God. It has a beginning. It has a central conflict that gives meaning to all action. And the ending, of course, is where everything gets wrapped up. The villains get punished. The heroes, after their many travails, get rewarded. In a religious system that expects the end, the believers become, shall we say, the Sherlock Holmes of the stories. They are the ones who understand the clues, while everybody else is at best Dr. Watson looking cluelessly, literally, at the world, not understanding where things are leading. The unbelievers are the Watsons. And Messianism thereby divides the world into those people who get it and those people who are blind those people who understand what the story is about and where it's going, and the ones who don't get it. 
Um, there are some consequences to looking at the world this way, besides the fact that you keep looking for good stories. Everything fits together. The world stops being random. It has meaning. That makes it very attractive. If there are particularly difficult times, our miraculous events are both together, we've gotten to the chase scene, the moment of high tension before everything finally fits together. So, for instance, if you have the Holocaust and then creation of the State of Israel, clearly the action is reaching a crescendo, and the last chapter, the final scene of the movie, is a moment away. That also fits a natural desire to live at the end of the story. If you're reading a long epic novel, one of those multi-generational family stories, clearly it would be better to le live in the family at the end of the story where everything comes together than to be one of the 15 generations along the way whose lives are much less interesting. So the moment that you look, the moment that you look at the world that way, there's a natural desire to feel that you're close to the end. Of course, you're not. So you become disappointed. You get to what expect, you expect to be the last page, and gee, there's another chapter, and you don't know what comes after that. Messianism is, in some sense, a public bipolar disorder. <clears throat> it leads to periods of intense excitement followed by intense depression. Actually, I once talked to a very, very interesting psychologist who threw out the theory to me, perhaps totally well-known to everybody who studies psychology, but it was new to me, that manic depressive uh, disorders are really only depressive. That the manic side is a temporary repression of the depression through intense energy and hope. Eventually, the intense energy and hope runs out and the person returns to depression. Messianism works in the same kind of waves. We have this idea that we're going to change everything, that it's all going to get together, that the age of Aquarius is going to start tomorrow, and then it doesn't happen, and it's really sad. And life becomes really unhappy because we didn't get to the end. There's also another thing about this idea of looking at the world as a novel. I once saw a cartoon in which some characters were watching the TV. And you didn't see the TV screen, but it was clear that there was a war scene on the TV. And the character's problem was they didn't know whether it was the news or a war movie. If it was a war movie, it was a very good war movie, and it was very exciting, and they wanted to cheer for the good guys. If, however, it was the news, it was extremely upsetting. Is it fact or fiction? When it's fiction, we are willing to suspend horror to a large extent. We are willing to suspend ethics to a large extent. We will let the hero do in a movie what we would not want people to do in real life. So when you combine that with the sense of the world being uh, flawed, messianic beliefs can sometimes result in what a colleague of mine uh, described as visions which are marred by pornographic violence. After all, the only people dying are characters in a movie. This is just a drama written by God. If all those people have to get killed for the new era to come, well, that's the way the story is written. And in my experience at reading the Messianic text or the Millennial text of various religions, the destructions of disaster can sometimes be overwhelming. If anybody here has heard of the Left Behind novels, which are a series of 12 novels which purport to tell the story of the last seven years of history according to the views of a particular school of Christian fundamentalism, 
The disasters are constant and beyond anything that we have ever experienced. Most of the world's population is supposed to die. And you're supposed to read that and think it's okay because it's a story. And yet that story is also supposed to be about what's really going to happen. To go back to my image of the cartoon, if it's the news and you think it's real and it's happening to real people, you're inside of ethical history where the ethical questions really matter. If people are getting killed, that's bad. If it's a movie, it's mythical history. It's just all part of the story. If you look at the world you're in as a big story written by God leading to this wonderful con uh, 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 conclusion, it's very easy to forgive violence. Messianism also has the power of providing tremendous motivation. A friend who grew up as a Christian fundamentalist told me that they were often asked, do you want to be in a bar or do you want to be looking at porn at the moment when Jesus comes back? And since Jesus could come back at any moment, you must be very careful. This is a highly, this is a very intense way of motivating people to what is seen as the right behavior. Messianism drastically increases the consequences of your action. It can do so in other ways. According to Lurianic Kabbalah, the world is cracked. It was shattered in creation. Each time you do a mitzvah, each time you fulfill a commandment, you are doing a tikkun, literally a repair of the broken world. You are fixing the world. If I say a bracha, a blessing, I am bringing the Messiah. That's more motivation than just doing what the book says. I'm going to bring the Messiah by saying shachrit, by saying my morning prayers this morning. It increases the power of my action. In Chabad, uh, in Chabad Hasidut's version of Messianism, we are very close to the end of the Lurianic process. If I can get one more person on the street to put on tefillin, that might be the final repair that brings the Messiah. If that's the way you're looking at it, it's easier to stand on the street corner asking strangers if they're Jewish and if they would please put on tefillin. Otherwise, it could be sort of embarrassing. <laughs> However, Chabad does not have a monopoly on this. If you're an, a classic communist and communism is going to bring the perfected world, it is also easier to stand outside a factory in the cold handing out leaflets. After all, you're not just unionizing this factory, you're bringing the last decisive battle. The motivation is amplified. At the moment that's the cusp of the new era, there are also new rules. Uh, a Israeli religious Zionist rabbi who I once debated about messianism explained to me that one reason that he preferred a messianic view is that he could be more lenient in halachic decisions, in decisions of Jewish law, because we were entering a new era. So therefore, he could permit certain things for women to do, for instance, in halakha, that he would not be able to permit under other circumstances. But all those rules were made for the pre-redeemed times. Since we're entering the period of the Messiah, we can rewrite the rule book. Often, this is a matter of rewriting the rule book in one, to one extreme or the other, and in particular in relationship to two subjects, sex and violence. Uh, as a person expecting the end, Jesus tightened the sexual rules. Um, divorce was no longer acceptable because you had to live at a higher standard on the cusp of the new kingdom. Shabbat Tzvi, on the other hand, sanctioned violating the sexual rules. 
In the redeemed era, adultery was no longer a sin. It was a mitzvah. This also takes place in terms of violence. Every age of normal history has rules for when violence is permitted and not. In part, this is because history has to continue, and we're responsible for what we do. In messianism, the value of what you're achieving is much greater, and there's no future to be wary of. So, for instance, the Kanaim, the zealots of the Roman period, violated the rules of war. The rules of war in the Roman era were that truces had to be honored. The Kanaim, the zealots, violated truces and massacred Roman soldiers who came under the flag of truce. After all, there was not going to be another war in which the other side might do that to them. And what they were going to achieve through this war was the perfection of the world. I interviewed a member of the Jewish terror underground that sought to blow up the Dome of the Rock in 1982. He explained to me how they had stolen the explosives from an Israeli army base. As an intense believer in the state of Israel, this was on one level difficult for him. But he said, as it looks now, that was theft. But when the redemption came, we understood that everybody would see that what we were doing was bringing the redemption. Because we are on the cusp of the new age, the meanings change and actions become permissible. So one of the, by the way, sometimes this happens in the opposite direction and messianism can lead to radical pacifism. The point is that the moderation of normal history gets upset when you think you're entering or on the cusp of the perfected era. You want me to apply this. This is all very abstract. So I will give the political consequences with where I live as the case study. Now, I want to stress, Messianism does not need to be place-dependent. It doesn't need to take place in Jerusalem. However, the Bible and Jewish tradition are where this all began. And in the Bible and Jewish tradition, the arena of the beginning and the end is the land of Israel, Jerusalem, and particularly the Temple Mount. If I'm writing a news story, the Temple Mount I have a paragraph. I don't even have to write it anymore. It's, there's a file there. I can just insert it in the story. The paragraph says that the Temple Mount is the place where the first and second temples stood in ancient times, and that according to Islamic tradition, this is where Muhammad arrived on his night journey and ascended to heaven. The second sentence of this already tells you that I've moved from history to sacred history to myth. But my single paragraph that I can squeeze into a news story is much too restricted. Let's add a little bit to the sacred history. According to Judaism, traditional Judaism, the Temple Mount is where Abraham sought to sacrifice Isaac. Um, here's the Hebrew version. Um, a rabbinic tradition, um, uh, this, this is Maimonides. The tradition known to all is that this is where Noah built his ark when he left the ark. And this is the altar where Cain and Abel sacrificed and where Adam offered a sacrifice when he was created. And there... That is to say, at the Temple Mount, he was created. The sages say he was created at the place of his atonement. The altar of the temple was supposed to atone for your sins. According to Maimonides, based on earlier Jewish traditions, the first human being was created at the very spot that he would atone for his sins. On the other hand, as anybody familiar with Jewish tradition knows, since the destruction of the second temple, the words, may the temple be rebuilt, are virtually synonymous with the words, may the Messiah come. 
Likewise, the rebuilding of Jerusalem or the return of the Jews to their land is classically associated with the Messianic era. Let's move on to Islam. There is a hadith, a tradition attributed to the prophet, which I learned from a leader of the Islamic movement in Israel, that Al-Aqsa, the mosque at what we call the Temple Mount, was built by Adam and is the second mosque in the world. The tradition goes like this. The prophet was asked what was the first mosque, and he replied, the Haram in Mecca. He was asked what was the second one, and he responded, Al-Aqsa. He was asked how many years were there between the first and the second, and he responded, 40 years. If you expected any other period of time, you have not been reading your sacred text. It is always 40 years. <laughs> in fact, I once had the story of Ibrahim's sacrifice of Ishmael repeated to me by a young and illiterate man who knew it purely from oral tradition in Kashmir, and he began telling the story like this. Long time ago, maybe 40 years ago, was a man named Ibrahim. <laughs> so obviously it's 40 years. Uh, he also didn't understand why I got the story despite his poor English. He had no idea that I already knew the story before he started. <laughs> the Haram is also the location of the end, according to many Jewish traditions, the Haram al-Sharif, the al-Aqsa. There is a tradition, another hadith, that the final judgment will take place in Jerusalem, where a bridge will be stretched from al-Aqsa to the Mount of Olives across the valley. This bridge will be the, the breath of a single hair, of a single strand of human hair. The souls of all living will have to walk across that bridge. The righteous will make it across, and the damned will fall off into hellfire. So that judgment will also take place in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, in Christianity, Jerusalem is also the stage of the founding story. In the last century and a half, among conservative Protestants, particularly fundamentalists, there has been the rise of a theology known as dispensational premillennialism. There will be a spelling test at the end. Uh, based on a literalist reading of Daniel and the Gospels, it asserts that the second coming will only take place after the Jews return to their land and after the desecration of the temple. In order for the temple to be desecrated, of course, it must be rebuilt. This is um, a text from Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, probably the best-selling book in the 20th century, uh, outside of the Bible itself or the Quran. Best-selling book that was not the sacred text of an entire religion, let's put it that way. And he's talking, this is written, he wrote it in 69, it was published in 70. When I interviewed him around 1998, he had sold 34 million copies in 54 languages. This is what writers dream of. Uh, and this is the opening page. The Hebrew prophets predicted that uh, as man neared the end of history as we know it, that there would be a precise pattern of events which would loom up in history. And all this would be around the most important sign of all. That is the Jew returning to the land of Israel. The Jew is the most important sign to this generation. And then later in the book he writes, this was written very soon after the 1967 war. He's describing how Israel's conquest of East Jerusalem and the Old City is a sign that the Second Coming is in, 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 indeed coming. He says, there remains but one more event to completely set the stage for Israel's part in the la last great act of her historical drama. This is to rebuild the ancient temple of worship upon its old site. So anything that Jews do, no matter how few or how extreme, to rebuild the temple is an intensely um, a fraught sign that the end is coming. The reason I read the text like this is 
that it is characteristic of people with these beliefs that Jews have become actors in their story, not real people. There's a certain sense that I have talking with them of the actor who has met the stalker who believes that he or she is the character in the last movie. The only problem is I wasn't even in the last movie. Um, I am a character in their story. Jews become, as it were, elves or hobbits or other mythical creatures whose behavior is well known from a text, completely unknown in this case to the people living out their lives. So the Temple Mount, El-Aqsa, embodies in three different religions, at least in strands of three different religions to be more precise, the entire divine novel. This is where creation took place, this is where the faith was founded, and this is where the plot comes to its end. There is a unity of place that Aristotle would have respected. And the center stage is within, the center stage is the Temple Mount, and it's within Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Now, you could read all of these texts as being metaphorical. Maimonides uh, was a strong opponent of literal readings of texts. When he said that the human being was created at the place of his atonement, as I understand what he's saying, it's a very powerful concept. He's saying human beings were created with the capacity to make mistakes and the capacity to atone for those mistakes. The possibility of forgiveness was created with the human being. I think that's a very powerful concept. It does, it's not place dependent. However, when real life historical events are taking place at the very spot that people regard as the stage of the end, it is extremely easy to cross over from normal history to messianic history and feel, wow, it's happening now. Those things that we read about in the old books, they're going on right this second, and we know what's going to happen next. So slipping into mythical history is easy. At the same time, you could say to me that the conflict over the land, the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, is really a national conflict. It's a secular thing. It's going on between people whose ultimate value is not God, but the nation, people who share a language, a culture, and a history. On one level, political Zionism is a strong rejection of messianism. It says, we're not waiting anymore for God to step in and bring a perfected era. We're going to create a political entity that's in normal history by ourselves. Thank you very much. We're out of this game of the divine novel. And yet, national movements also need a story that defines the community, that explains who this nation is, why we're connected to this particular piece of land. You can make up the story from scratch, or you can buy it off the shelf and alter it a little bit. And so politi nationalist political movements very often politicize religious myths. And the real place is the point. So from the very beginning, Zionism has also had, even secular Zionism, has had messianic overturns. Oh, the, the expression for buying land for Jewish settlement from the early 20th century was geulat hakarka, redemption of the land. That was supposedly a secular term. In 1928, Zionist leader uh, Menachem Usishkin gave a speech in Jerusalem in which he said, 
Let us swear that the Jewish people will not rest or be silent until our national home is built on our Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is a name for the Temple Mount, and home, by it, in Hebrew, is also a word for the temple. So on one level, he was saying, we will not rest until we have independence. But all of the language he was using to express that was classical language of Messianism. Um, here we have an important text. For those of you who read Hebrew, for those who don't, I will uh, try uh, uh, forlornly to translate it. This is from Gershom Sholem. It's a letter he wrote in the 1920s to Franz Rosenzweig. And he was talking about the rebirth of the Hebrew language. And he said, this is terribly unfair of me because I'm sure that the original letter was written in German and this is the Hebrew translation and I'm translating to English and it probably has no relationship to the, to the original text. And it's a completely irresponsible act on my part and I beg your forgiveness. Okay, uh, with that disqualifying uh, statement, what are the consequences of contemporizing Hebrew? The actual verb in Hebrew is sort of nowing uh, uh, Hebrew, making it now. Will the sacred tongue that we have imbued in our children not open its abyss? For people here do not know the meaning of their actions. They think they have turned Hebrew into a secular language and that they have removed its apocalyptic sting. But that's not true. Secularizing the language is mere talk. Will the religious power hidden in it not burst out one day against those who speak it? When you carry on a cultural tradition that has overtones, they stay there. That's what Shulam was saying. And sometimes they come back in full force. One example of this is religious nationalism. Imagine this in Hegelian terms. The thesis was religion. The antithesis in Jewish terms was secular Zionism. Redefining the Jews as a nationality, religion is passé. The synthesis is religious nationalism. Nationalism becomes a religious value. Geulat karka, redemption of the land, both means buying land for a Jewish settlement, and it means redemption. By buying that piece of land, you're bringing the Messiah closer. The old thesis, pre-modern view, was that a Jewish state can't be built until the Messiah comes. In the view of Avraham Yitzhak Akon Cook, really the theological father of the most prevalent form of religious Zionism today, it is correct that the state cannot be built until the Messiah is coming. However, the state is being built. Ergo, the Messiah is coming. And the people who are building the state are bringing the Messiah even if they don't know it. They're the Watsons of this story. They don't read the clues. We, the religious Zionists, know what the story really means. The prayer for the state of Israel recited in many Orthodox synagogues, both in Israel and abroad, declares the state of Israel to be the first flowering of our redemption. Again, we're caught with an ambiguity. How much is it first? And how much is it the redemption happening now? I'm just going to look at one more event and then try to tie together the political consequences of this. In 1967, there was a tipping point. The apocalyptic sting surfaced. A colonel named Motagur led a force which conquered the Temple Mount for the Jewish state. Over the army radio, he said, Har habayat biyadenu, three words in Hebrew, the Temple Mount is in our hands. That statement as uh, Gershom Sholem would have predicted, echoed in a way that Hill 23 is in our hands would not have echoed. In Jewish history, saying that we had returned to the Temple Mount meant that the story was being completed. Now, for secular Zionists, except um, perhaps the most radical, that doesn't mean we have to rebuild the temple at that spot, but it symbolizes 
the completion of the Jewish return to the land. Naomi Shemer, um, did I put this text? No, I didn't. And our music isn't working, so I'll skip it. But in the in Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold, the verse that she added after the 67 war said, we've come back to the market and the square. A shofar calls on the Temple Mount. A shofar is the sound of the Messiah coming in Isaiah. When there was a real shofar sounded on the Temple Mount, but Shemer picked up on what that meant in the symbolic uh, lexicon of Jewish history. For religious Zionism, the Cook School that the state was leading to redemption became dominant. Svi Yehuda Cook, the son of the original Rav Cook, said after 1967, we are not in the entrance hall of redemption, but in the living room. We're already virtually there. So Zionism was transformed into a truly messianic movement. And settling in the West Bank or in Gaza or in the Golan Heights, settling the land of Israel became a way of getting with God's program. And events were explained Accordingly, meanwhile, for Muslims, Al-Aqsa under Jewish rule was a symbol of Palestine under occupation. Any office you go into in East Jerusalem has a photograph of Al-Aqsa, what we would call the Temple Mount, often an aerial photograph showing the entire Haram al-Sharif. If Jewish nationalism is Zionism, named after the place Zion, Palestinian nationalism could be called Al-Aqsaism. And for religious Muslims, Al-Aqsa under Jewish rule is a sign clearly of the disturbed state of the world that needs to be corrected. By 2000, there was a wide popular literature that said that the end was very near, that a Jewish false redeemer, the Dajjal, that's an Islamic term for something parallel to the Antichrist, the false redeemer in Christianity, was planning to undermine Al-Aqsa as a step toward the end. Okay, that's what's going on at the time of the Camp David summit at the time that, um, that Israel is talking about, that the Palestinians and the Israelis are arguing about who will get sovereignty over the Temple Mount. Meanwhile, in every bookstore in East Jerusalem, you could pick up tracts about the approaching Dijal who was going to destroy the, um, the, the Al-Aqsa mosques. When Ehud Barak demanded that Israel get full sovereignty over the Mount in any peace agreement, it echoed in ways that he did not expect and probably is not aware of to this day. Um, I'll give one more case study politically. In 2005, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip. This ran against the messianic program as imagined by religious Zionists. Therefore, it could not happen. Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu said, Hayo lo it shall not come to pass. And his followers believed him. There was a, because banks would not lend money to farmers for next year's crop, a fund was set up where religious Zionists put in money, which they were asked to see as investments, to lend to the farmers in the Gaza Strip so they could plant the crops for the winter of 2005. And many people put in large amounts of money. After all, you could invest. God had told you it wouldn't happen. Afterwards, by the way, Pat Robertson, who also thought that it wouldn't happen and shouldn't have happened, explained Ariel Sharon's stroke as being divine retribution for pulling the settlements out of Gaza. Is this way of looking at history a religious necessity? At first glance, messianism is an answer, perhaps the necessary answer, to a flawed world. Either God will fix it or we will fix it with him. Uh, 
and that it would seem to be a moral necessity. It motivates people to act. It gets things moving. And yet, as I said, it's manic depressive. We're always disappointed. When we are disappointed, people often give up faith that they can do anything. Hope disappears. When it does uh, in create a revolution, the disappointment may be worst of all. See under the value for communism. Um, you created the revolution. You changed the world. It didn't make things the way you expected to. What value is there to action in the world? And as I said, it promotes a view of history that is mythical rather than ethical. In Israeli context, it has functioned as a barrier to any kind of political compromise. If holding on to the land of Israel is a necessary condition for the bringing of the Messiah and the perfection of the world, what normal political compromise could justify giving up that vision? After all, we're in it to save the whole world. It becomes the motor of extremism. So at various times, religion has also had answers to this. Um, after the messianic disasters of the Great Revolt against Rome and the Bar Kokhba Revolt, as I said, the rabbis turned messianism into waiting. The Messiah was God's business, not ours. Ours was to keep mitzvot. He would bring Mashiach in his own good time. Eventually, Jews got tired of this, and Zionism was the result. According to Rabbi David Hartman, we should see messianism as a critique of the world as it is, but not a description of what we're going to reach. He said to me, if you think the world should be a place without war and without poverty, that's a catalyst for enormous moral energy. But that's not a condition, a description of a condition in history. In other words, imagine the messianic idea in Judaism, something like the concept of limits in mathematics. It's a thing that you can approach but never get to. But the best response I've ever seen to this was really from Michael Walzer in his book Exodus and Revolution. And he says, I'm summing up an entire book here in altogether too little time, that the model for a Jewish politics is not, there's more than one model. There's not just the messianic model. There's the model of the exodus from Egypt. When the Israelites left Egypt, they did not leave in order to reach a perfect place, but a better place. Evil was not to be eliminated. Instead, we were to receive laws that would help us cope with evil. We were not going to a perfect land. The promised land was a place in which to live and try to be decent people. Messianism, therefore, is a temptation, not a necessity. And I will finish with one final story. In 2000, Pope John Paul came to Jerusalem. That in itself is a whole story in itself, but he was going to visit the Western Wall in the Temple Mount. A couple of days before he came to the Temple Mount, there was a demonstration by radical members of the temple movement, people who hoped to rebuild the temple at the Western Wall Plaza against the Pope's visit to the Temple Mount. And I went to cover the demonstration as a reporter. And afterwards, I walked up to one of the organizers and I said, Hanan, what do you have against the Pope visiting the Temple Mount? And he said, I have no problem with the Pope visiting the Temple Mount. He could still convert to Judaism, offer sacrifices in the rebuilt temple. After all, it says in Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Two days afterwards, the Pope came to the Western Wall. Because he was a religious figure, the cabinet selected the one rabbi who was then a cabinet minister, Michael Melchior, to be his official host. And Rabbi Melchior greeted the Pope at the entrance to the Western Wall Plaza, and he said, we are very happy to have you here. 
and to, allow, to give you the opportunity to pray here. After all, it says in the book of Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer for all people. It was the same place, it was the same verse, but there were very different readings of it, and one led to necessary uh, uh, conflict in the pursuit of an absolute and unbending vision, and the other allowed for the possibility of compromise and of peace in the world as it is now, inside of history and not at its end. Thank you very much. Um, well, that, that was really a, a really rich and, and wonderful and, and, and provocative talk, and uh, I thank you, um, Gershom, for coming and, and sharing that with us. We do have uh, a little bit of time for some questions, and um, uh, as the rules go, we, we ask that Goucher students have first priority. Um, also, I know a lot of you probably may have questions that have to do with this talk, but also may have to do with current events um, in Israel. So um, uh, Gershom Gorenberg would be happy to take those as well. Just one uh, request. A question is, a, uh, is not a speech or, or a lecture. It is a, it is a short sentence um, that, in journalistic ease, is looking for an answer. So I ask you to please keep your, um, keep your sentences short and looking for an answer. So... Oh, I guess we had the question session. That was easy. <laughs> In the back, yeah. You know, there was this long debate between, um, I used to be part of something called the Center for Millennial Studies at Boston University. And there were a lot of scholars who studied Messianism and the greatest argument between them was between the millennial universalists who saw everything as a millennial movement um, and the ones who did not. And I've come to side with the ones who did not. You can be excited and are disappointed without expecting the world's perfection. Not every movement for social change is necessarily millennial. It is true that at any given point, a, um, a strong movement for change can tap into those energies. But I think it would be a mistake to automatically disqualify any expression of intense social activism or hope as being um, intrinsically flawed because it's messianic. So, no, I don't think you have to universalize in, 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 in that sort of way. Um, what do you think is the fate of Jerusalem over the next um, <laughs> I write about a lot of people who believe in prophecy, and it's taught me not to engage in it. Um, the Talmud says that when the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from the prophets and given to fools and children. Since my beard went gray, I've realized that I can't qualify as a child, and I'm trying not to qualify for the other category. So I won't make any predictions about what will happen. In terms of what I think should happen, which is an entirely different thing, and I've also learned after years of writing opinion articles that nobody is listening to me. However... 
with those qualifications, I don't think that we're going to reach any solution to Jerusalem until we recognize that the city is essential to the religious and national stories of both nations and both religions involved in the current conflict, and there's going to have to be a compromise over that. Claiming exclusive control of all of Jerusalem is a recipe for continued conflict. The center of both Jewish and Palestinian nationalism is the idea that Jerusalem is the symbol of independence. Uh, in both religious and national narratives, the Temple Mount or Al-Aqsa is a critical symbol for the nation's position and the religion's position. If we keep saying only I get it, we're never going to get there. And so we're going to have to reach compromises. I don't want to see the city divided physically, but I think that there's no escape if we want a peace agreement. That's a question in itself of whether people actually want that from a political division of the city. And I think that when it comes to the holy spots, we're going to have to look for very creative solutions that allow each side to feel that their story has not been denied. Because when people feel like their story has been denied, they feel like they've been denied, and they will keep fighting. In some ways, people rebel more strongly against the denial of their story than they do against physical attack. Um, so we're going to have to cope with that um, in, one, in, in one way or another. And so I'll just add one more sort of symbolic story to go with this. There is a midrash, a rabbinic commentary on the book of Genesis that tries to understand why Cain killed Abel. Okay, because the rabbis were not reading that story literally, and they knew that it was a story about violence coming into the world. And they said, what were they actually arguing about? So there's one rabbi who says, uh, there was a sister born with Cain and Abel, and they both wanted her as their wife. Okay, that's the Freudian explanation, right? All violence is really about sex. The second explanation is that they decided to divide all the property in the world, and one got the movable property, and one got the real estate. And the one who got the movable property said to the other one, strip. And the one who got the real estate said to the other one, fly, you're standing on my land. And they started fighting over property, and one killed the other. That's what we'll call the Marxist explanation. It's all materialistic. The third rabbi says, nope, they decided to divide the movable property, and they decided to divide the real estate, and everything was great until one said, and I get the spot where the temple will be built. And then the other one said, no, I get the spot where the temple will be built, and one killed the other. And I find this a remarkable story because it's a religious person saying that when you think that you own God by owning the spot, the result is inevitably fratricide. And I, I think that we have to learn that lesson in dealing with Jerusalem. If we're each claiming that we have to own it, and that there's no compromise on that, we're going to keep fighting. Yeah, I actually think it's easier to do if you're not being messianic. I think it's easier to do if you're not expecting everything to end up perfectly because when people expect everything to end up perfectly, I think often built into that is an expectation that then everybody will agree with me because if the truth comes out, it's going to be my truth, right? And we'll all agree on it. Uh, in the real world, we don't get to those kind of truths that everybody agrees on. And I think that we have to look for religious stories that allow for the possibility that... Um, 
that the other person is created in the image of God even when they don't agree with us and they're not necessarily acting precisely how we would have them act. That is a non-messianic narrative. Uh, I think the biblical example of this is that in the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob expects a war with his brother, and then it doesn't happen for all sorts of reasons. And when he greets his brother, he says, I've seen your face like seeing the face of God. Or to put it differently, in the face of the person who is both his enemy and his brother, and if you read the book of Genesis, the enemy is always your brother. The, the Bible's theory of violence is that it's fratricide, right? Um, you meet your enemy and you see the face of God in his face. And that's the kind of religious story that accepts the sanctity of another human being in the world as it is right now, not in some sort of perfected age. I, you know, that's a real problem because often they don't. They often go underground. They go into, um, into hibernation. You know, I started off by saying that um, it was a mistake for me to arrive at the time and place that I was supposed to. So what happens very often when, there is, when dissonance opens up between what we expected to happen and what actually happens? One of the most important books of religious studies and cognitive psychology was written on the subject. It's a book that I highly recommend called When Prophecy Fails. And it was written about a small sect that believed that spaceships were going to come and pick up the members of the sect before this disaster that was going to overtake the world. And when it didn't happen on the date it was supposed to, the researchers would have expected the people to stop believing. And instead, they intensified their efforts to convince people that something really was going to happen because the psychological explanation is when everybody around me believes something, it must be true, okay? Because everybody wouldn't believe something if it was false. So if I can convince, the more people I can convince to believe what I do, the more true it is. So if I've just faced an apparent, the fancy word for this is disconfirmation of my beliefs, the thing to do is to go out and convince everybody that they're true anyway. And this has happened often in messianic movements of various sorts. Or you can say that the event has been delayed or that something has already begun, but it will be completed at a later time. Or that we still really expect it to happen, but we've discovered that we have to wait. Um, there will be people who will leave the movement at that moment, and there will be some people who will carry on the tradition, and it bursts out at a later point. The tradition of Lurianic Kabbalah originally brought the outburst of the Shabbatian movement in the 17th century, went underground, is very much part of Chabad messianism, and has been reinterpreted in light of modern nationalism within the messianism of, of the rabbi's cook, father and son. So um, I'm sure there's messianic movements that have disappeared completely. Um, I can think of one or two that disappeared completely because the members killed themselves thinking that that was the final act for bringing the Messiah. Not a particularly uh, rare occurrence either. But outside of that, I'm not sure how they end. When I find one that's ended in really calm ways, I'll get back to you and describe it. <laughs> As, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part of the question. They'll be co-located, so you would have to destroy the temple. 
Well, the problem, a critical problem with the people who want to rebuild the temple is that they want to get rid of the Muslim shrines there. And um, this is, a, shall we say, a touchy subject. Uh, in 1982, well, it started in 1978, after the signing of the peace agreement with Egypt, there was a small group of people based in the settlements who came to the conclusion, theologically, that the peace agreement was a punishment of the Jewish people because they had failed to build the temple after the conquest of the old city in 1967. Therefore, besides that, there was this problem that there was this agreement that was going to lead to the withdrawal from Sinai, which they considered theologically unacceptable. Their solution was a plan to blow up the Dome of the Rock, which they thought was going to set off the redemption. Um, <clears throat> and they spent a lot of time making preparations for this. Some of the members had their doubts and weren't willing to participate, but apparently, to the best I can determine, the real reason that the plot did not get carried out is that six weeks before the evacuation from Sinai, the... Uh, operations commander of the group, the guy who really knew how to make bombs because he was a deputy battalion commander in the army engineers in Israel, came down with hepatitis and was unable to participate. Sometimes this almost gets me believing in direct divine intervention in history, but I'm careful not to go there. Uh, <laughs> but they thought that to bring the redemption, they had to destroy the Dome of the Rock. I think that it is necessarily unnecessary. <laughs> um, I think it leads people, it has the potential to lead people in a lot of bad directions. Even simply the, um, the fostering of unrealistic hopes when, when they are not met tend to lead to political despair. That is to say, if you think you're going, you know, if you think you've gotten there and you haven't, then you ask why there's any point in going anywhere at all. And to me, even if none of the, the violence and other extremism were involved with it, I would see that as a critical flaw. I think that activism in this world is something that we have to accept that we must motivate ourselves for, even though we're never going to get to the world that we want to, but we can never accept the world as it is. And if we think we're going to get there, we're likely to be deeply disappointed and give up. Well, first of all, they're explained and fit into the system, which is a very normal thing. Um, my teacher in this field told me that it's very, very important to collect texts because they disappear. The internal ministry of truth in every religion gets rid of the messianic texts when they don't come true. The best example I can give you of this is not from Judaism. It's from fundamentalist Christianity. There was a book that came out in the mid-'80s called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Should Take Place in 1988 the rapture being the beginning of the end in their theology. 
Uh, it was extraordinarily difficult to find a copy of this in 2000. Even though it had sold in the millions, most people did not want it on their bookshelf after it didn't happen. Um, but explanations are created. So, for instance, uh, the 1973 Yom Kippur War came as a tremendous shock to those who thought that 1967 was a proof of the impending redemption. In one critical text on the subject, it was explained as the war of Gog and Magog, as predicted in the book of Ezekiel. It was a sign that the Gentiles knew that redemption was coming and they were fighting to prevent it. And therefore, it was part of the scheme of, of the end. So that kind of constantly working the disconfirmation into the scheme to become a confirmation is very common. The other thing is, I'm not so sure now that you asked the question, I haven't thought about this before, that um, the mechanism of convincing people that it's true isn't going on. There's a tremendous ideological enterprise aimed at strengthening faith, at least within the community, and convincing everybody to keep going. And so that's there too. It may not be bursting outward in the same way as, say, um, a dispensational Christian standing at street corners with leaflets on the end, but internally to the community, the mechanisms of group persuasion are incredibly intense. And, you know, any kid who's gone to an Israeli religious high school and has been outside of it enough to notice what's going on could, could tell you a good story about that. You can ask my son. He'll tell you all about it. <laughs> As my blogging partner said, South Jerusalem may be the only place in the world where you can be a left-wing, progressive, skeptical, orthodox Jew and feel like you're part of a mass movement. <laughs> I, I can't explain to you the sociological reasons that that developed, but once people know that like-minded people live there, they tend to move there. And so it's the center of pluralistic religious responses. It's a very intellectual corner of Jerusalem, and it feels like home. And so we decided to name our blog after that spot and to hope that people would come in and feel comfortable there as we do. Don't. To discredit it. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, not as such that I look you know what I don't know all the religious movements in the world um, that's a little bit beyond me so I can't tell you an answer to that I haven't run into a movement that said within the three um, monotheistic religions all of which are heavily infused with messianic trends to say it will never happen what I do see is movements that change its meaning or that a make it irrelevant to present-day life, or in some other way, uh, put the focus on now rather than on the end. And strangely enough, this quote from Kafka that I started with is in some ways sums this up. Okay, the Messiah will not come on the last day, but the very last day. He will come when he is no longer necessary. Now, like most things from Kafka, there's more readings of that than... I mean, each time you look at it, it means something else, even though it's very intriguing. But the way I'm reading it at the moment is um, 
what we have to do something about is today and not worry about the very last day. He will come only when he is no longer necessary. So there are religious movements that put the focus on the here and now rather than on a cataclysmic completed process. It's more important what one of you does for another, what I do for you, what you do for me, than saving the whole world. Because saving the whole world is probably not going to happen, but that particular act right now is very, very, very important. Um, there's, there's the sentence. <laughs> um, it, when I read the texts, I have the best explanation for me of how to read the text is the way that uh, Rav David Hartman suggested. It's a um, standard by which to judge this world. It is not a place that I expect us to reach. Um, the world must be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Any world that has the things going on in it right now that are going on and that have always gone on, um, any world that has the amount of war and poverty that we have in our world must be measured against some measure and found wanting, and we must seek to change it. But we must not fool ourselves to think that we've gotten there or that we're going to get there. Look, first of all, in, in Islam, as in Judaism, uh, there's not one story. There's conflicting versions of the end within the text, and one can get pretty lost in it. And by the way, that's very true of Jewish texts as well. There's all sorts of accounts within classical Jewish texts of what it will be like in the end of days. But they don't line up with each other, and there's no particular obligation to accept one version over another. Um, but there is, you know, there's a very strong strand within Islam that says that a um, redeemer will come and perfect the world, um, usually referred to as the Mahdi, the rightly guided one. And there's a whole set of hadith, of traditions attributed to the prophet that, begins, that begin with the phrase, the hour will not come until, um, the hour being the final hour. And usually these are descriptions of bad things. Um, and which particular one you like, again, is, as a, if you're a believing Muslim, tells me something about what your view of the world is. I mean, in other words, um, if your favorite hadith on this subject is the hour will not come until beauty contests are held in mosques, then, you know, your problem is probably um, uh, the breakdown of religion and sexual licentiousness or whatever. If you're favorite hadith is something else, then you have a different idea of what's wrong with today and what necessarily will happen at the end. Those traditions exist. One of the things that's interesting about this is that there's a lot of literature on Islam that says that there's no such thing. And the reason for this, as far as I understand from the, uh, there's a friend and scholar who I respect very deeply who's written on the subject, David Cook, who teaches at Rice University. And he explains that the establishment of Islam at various times has tried to repress uh, apocalyptic traditions. So in the key books that Western scholars usually read as being the representative books of Islam, it's not there. But in dozens of other books, it is there, and it has a very strong uh, um, 
popular ground, uh, grounding. And as I said, for instance, for some reason or another, I think mainly Western influence, there was a real um, flourishing of new millennial expectations in Islam in the late 90s. And the bookstores of East Jerusalem and Ramallah were full of tracts on the subject with lurid descriptions of the events leading to the end. And any place in particular that uh, Oh, yeah, Jerusalem. Oh, El Aqsa. Everybody agrees that that's the stage of the end. Look, the focus of Christian fundamentalists on Israel has grown steadily over the last six decades. I mean, it was there before the creation of the state. Uh, the creation of the state, and even more so 1967, uh, played a major role in the increase in uh, evangelical belief th that the end was near. And I think that there's a psychology to this that's, that's really understandable, because if you're part of the, um, of the subculture, you live in a world which constantly denies your belief. You believe that the miracles of the Bible took place literally, that God is active in the world, um, that the world was created in six days, a whole set of beliefs that are very, very important to you, not to mention your theological beliefs, and secular society constantly denies them. You also believe that the Jews will return to their land before the second coming, and they're doing it. And so part of what you believe in is being confirmed in the real world. And you really love those people who are confirming your beliefs. And it doesn't matter, or it's sort of strange and sometimes even upsetting that they don't get the fact that they're doing it, that they insist on being the Dr. Watsons of the story, but they're still really important. So when I was doing my research on the subject in the late 90s, I got incredibly enthusiastic responses, the idea that a religious Jew wanted to interview them about this. And it's been the source of major political support for very, very right-wing policies in Israel from people who still see Israel as something that's going to be destroyed during the period of the rapture and the second coming. Um, because at the same time, the Jews are mistaken because they haven't accepted Jesus. Now, it is also true that there have been various times in Christian history where when literalism in reading the Bible has increased, there's been an increased interest in uh, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as it's referred to in Christianity and sometimes this leads to Judaizing tendencies, a, a, a tendency to adopt Jewish rituals in one form or another and seeing them as Christian rituals. And I've also seen this sometimes in very strange ways. I went to a convention of Christian Zionists, essentially evangelicals with these beliefs, in 1999 in Jerusalem in the lobby of the Jerusalem Convention Center it sounded like warm-up for Yom Kippur. There was a constant um, chorus, a constant orchestra of off-key shofarot, which were, besides talitot were the two most popular items on sale there. 
And then I went, there had to be a competing organization. This is the way politics work. There was an even more right-wing break-off that had their own opening event. And that was, for me as a Jew, a very strange event because it opened with this prayer event which involved a Christian rock band and a choreographed dance, and the women were dancing with Tali Tote. And it was this strange mix of rock concert, Christian prayer service, and Jewish symbols. And it's completely what you would expect of the syncretizing tendencies of millennial movements.